This is a Dubai Eye 103.8 podcast. Mr. Guinness World Records for a start, uh, Martin Rees, and a finalist from Romania's Got Talent, Mr. Silar as well. Join us in studio. Gentlemen, it's fantastic to have you on the show. Thanks for having us. Yeah, thanks for having us. I mean, what an introduction. You've just come in here and we've been kind of blown away by, yeah, by both are. of you, really. <laughs> um, this, is, this is incredible. Well, you've got your own page in the Guinness Book of World Records, Martin. Maybe, yes. maybe we should start with that. I mean, not many people have an entire page <laughs> dedicated to themselves. I know. I got the Guinness World Records book growing up each year. And so uh, now to have my own page in the book is, uh, for, for me, it's just one of those kind of real kind of milestone achievements in life. And uh, yeah, I've uh, done six Guinness World Records or broken six Guinness World Record titles uh, so far. And those and six still stand to this day? No, funnily enough, um, uh, the water, so I did the most magic underwater in three minutes back in 2020. <laughs> My, How does one do magic underwater? Just with, with difficulty. Uh, my, also, my biggest fear is being underwater because I nearly drowned in the sea as a kid. So I did the record to overcome my fear of being in water. And um, the record was actually broken just before Christmas by a 13-year-old girl in California, oh. uh, who is uh, which I am so proud for. Because uh, You're going my, back after it, though, right? No, not at all, not at all. Because from my perspective, like uh, what I do, and especially with my latest project, which I'll talk about in a bit, um, it's all about inspiring the next generation to go out and pursue their dreams and push themselves and face the fear. So the fact that the record's been broken by um, Avery is amazing because uh, for me, it just it, it is exactly why I do what I do. It's just to inspire others to. So how many uh, tricks did you perform in three minutes underwater? Uh, well, this is the thing. So I, when I did it, I did 20 tricks. She did 38. So uh, she didn't just break the record. She right. smashed it. <laughs> Almost wow. doubled it, right? Yeah, wow. Yeah, you, you really have to go back to the well to get 39 <laughs> tricks. Can you do sleight of hand underwater? How does it work? It's difficult because, so I also did the most magic on a skydive as well. And oh. the thing is, in these environments, uh, the materials behave so differently. Like underwater, uh, we require a lot on the hand being quicker than the eye and uh, things uh, with, with sleight of hand. But in water, because you've got the water resistance against everything you do, everything's slowed down. So all the sleight of hand, all the quick moves that we would usually do in air is, uh, yeah, essentially not not possible underwater so i had to adapt quite a lot for that another record that you had was the most magic tricks in one minute what were some of those tricks and how many did you manage to do yeah so silo actually uh helped me with that last year it was great because uh, uh we did it actually when we did the photo shoot for the uh for the book and uh it was uh well what do we do we did, we did all sorts the things was well, uh, yeah, I came in basically a weekend before uh, the thing came in <laughs> yeah. uh, to consult. And I kind of looked, they had, there was this long table of tricks, right? Yeah. Where you start here and you end at the other side and you have 42, I think we did, you right? You did 42 yeah. magic tricks 40, in a minute. No, 40, no, sorry, 48 uh, in one minute. And then oh, he yes. did it again blindfolded and we got 42 in one minute. No, 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 we did. So we had 48 tricks lined up. Yeah. I didn't quite get to the 48. So I did 42 did without the 42 blindfold. 42 and 38. And, yeah, then, that's yeah, it, th yeah. and then I did 38 tricks on the most magic blindfolded in one minute. Yeah. Wow. What? That's incredible. That's it. How did you guys meet, incidentally? Uh, well, during lockdown, um, his um, office was very close to my house and we both started <laughs> yeah. uh, doing virtual magic shows. Mm. So, uh, you know, it's hard because it was a new style of magic. You can't just do the same magic you do in real life. Yeah. So it was really good to like discuss magic and come up with stuff that we could potentially do and test mm. it out on each other and stuff. So from then on, we just started our own show in London. Yeah. Um, and then just kept going and doing shows. I thought mm. it was a great outlet for us to practice every month to yeah. 
practice stage magic. I yeah. like how you say you can't keep doing the same magic you do in day-to-day life. I mean, how do you even get into magic in the first yeah. place? They're going back a little bit here, but... Well, so I was... Uh, I'm from Romania originally. I, I used to work in a coffee shop. There was also a nightclub because that's a normal thing. <laughs> in Romania? Uh, yeah, of course, yeah. So in the day it was busy, but at night it was dead, obviously, because who goes to a nightclub in a coffee shop? So I used to watch... <laughs> I used to watch David Blaine on YouTube because I was bored at work. And then I thought, whoa, I could get a lot of tips if I show clients uh, magic tricks. And then that's how I started learning. That was my reasoning. And then after that, I just, you know, people were so impressed by magic, more so than me giving them free drinks. So I thought, whoa, there's something here, I think. And uh, that's that's how my thing started. And you got into psychological magic. So yes. is, is this kind of mind reading and that kind of thing? Yeah, I, I think I picked that title because it lets me perform the type of magic I want at the time, I guess, because mind reading feels very... You know, like you can just read somebody's mind. You can't do anything else. And mentalist yeah. doesn't really work in the UK that well. Right. Know? No, of course. Um, so psychological magician, I thought it's because people ask me, what does that mean? And I'm like, perfect. I got gotcha. you. Know? <laughs> now just the real of it. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. Uh, did you ever have guys like moments where you got caught out or you, you sort of flunked a trick? Absolutely. All the time. Yeah. I don't mm. care. I'm, I'm so good at winging it now because <laughs> I messed up so much. I'm actually mm. excited when I get something wrong because I know I'm going to kill it. <laughs> like I'm so instinctively instinctively good at like covering my tracks <laughs> that it's, when something goes wrong I'm just like whoa compared to other magicians that freak out when something goes wrong right you know? yeah. Yeah. totally more different me. kind of thrill yeah, right? totally, so yeah absolutely. when something goes wrong do you, do you merely just incorporate it into the act well if I can like the one that went wrong and I couldn't really turn it around I, I had a guy on stage with a pad and I had leaf written on it and I said out loud say to everybody what you're thinking of and he went golf ball um, <laughs> and I put the pad down and I said that is correct thank you very much give him a round of applause <laughs> so obviously the audience knew I messed up but it doesn't matter if I don't freak out they don't freak out like right. it's a magic show. it's a show where it's yeah. we need to be entertained and have fun I don't care if I mess up and Tyler you, so, you decided to go for Romania's Got Talent I mean what was that experience like because you made it all the way to the finals yeah the thing is is um, like it was Romania's Got Talent and other sort of TV shows in Romania but the 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 thing was every time I didn't tell them I'm Romanian so I performed in English for the judges and then at the end while they're talking to me I switched to Romanian so that was my overall magic trick so I didn't want to go and do the finals because then I would have to do it in Romanian and I haven't performed magic in Romanian for 12 years now and I know the jokes wouldn't land the translation wouldn't work so I said look I don't want to do it but thank you you know so uh, it's it's good because it's fun. And then I went again, but with a mask on. <laughs> so I did it again, and I'll go again a third time, probably dressed as Gandalf or something. You know, uh, it's it's very funny when you see their faces. And they're like, "It's you again." I'm like, "Yeah, it is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. it's very fun." Give us a flavor, guys, of Evening of Wonders. What can people expect from that show? So, so would you want to start? Because you're starting the show, so you go first. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, this is uh, Minus Side's little baby. We uh, came up with the idea for the show during the third lockdown in England, and we used it as a means to help other magicians get out and start performing again once uh, the world got uh, back up and running. So uh, we started in Leicester Square in London, and uh, the show we wanted to kind of break your traditional norms of a magic show in the sense of we haven't got any big illusions or any big. Uh, kind of glamorous assistance. You're the props. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> we wanted to make it a very immersive experience for uh, the audience watching so that they're, because the thing with magic is quite often someone will get, a, a magician will get someone up on the stage, the person on the stage experiences the moment of magic and so they, they are the ones that have the magic done to them and then everyone else is essentially a spectator to the moment whereas with our show we like to try and incorporate moments where everyone is 
experiencing that magic moment at the same time and uh, it just makes it more visceral and uh, more more of an experience for everyone really so is it just you two or do we have a, a full quote it's just the two just of us two, yeah. yeah yeah just those two on this one so uh, i'm going to do the first because it's not a double act we're not a double act ourselves um i i kind of do my set and then silo does his set and then i'm going to finish by break trying to break one of my guinness world records uh which is uh, one of those things that i very much uh it's, it's, it's a very hard record to do but it's and really exciting every time we've done the show in leicester square maybe yeah. like 50 times and i've seen it yeah do the record over and over again and it's just the most exciting part of everybody's evening because I don't think mm. anybody's seen a world record yeah. then regardless of what it is I think it's just yeah. exciting you yeah. know and to be one, part of it and there, there's a very strong I mean it's one of those things where I tend to not get it more than I get it so um, particularly for Saturday uh, I'm a little bit nervous because uh, yeah it's my can first time can you reveal time. what the record is or is it uh, secret so, yeah no not all the uh, record itself well actually should I keep it as a surprise keep it a mystery keep come it a to mystery. the show if you want to know oh, yeah. oh very nice yeah. very nice okay we're going to get into some uh, to some magic yes. now, gentlemen, if yes. we can. Uh, Sila, I, I believe you are going to put Mr. McCarty yes, through right. his paces. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So um, I want you to be involved as well, okay. mostly be on my side, okay? So I'm going to show you what I wrote down. Please don't uh, tell Chris what it is. Okay. okay. Sorry, I left the microphone for a second. Uh, Chris, can you hold this? Yes, of course. And I made a list of 100 potential holiday destinations you could go to. Give me a number between 1 and 100, please. I'm going to go with 99. 99. A lot of scrolling. Um, hopefully you can... You can see they're all different, you guys. Yeah. Uh, I'm having a closer look. Can you take? Uh, can you go to 99 and say out loud what it is, please? Okay. Let's see. <laughs> let's go to number 99. It's all the way down the list. It is New York. Can you have a look, Chris? What I wrote down on the no piece of paper. No way. No <laughs> way. That is New York. I'm gonna put that to the camera. It is indeed. Was New it York. was it me that does magic or was it Chris? We'll never know, actually. <laughs> I think it might have been you, Chris. <laughs> now um, I'm gonna I'm gonna try and read Chris's mind, but before I do that, I wanna uh, I wanna do something with everybody listening and watching. So could you all um, imagine a rainbow in front of you, right? So you yeah. know the colors of the rainbow: red, orange, purple, pink, blue, green. Uh, if I would get you to paint a landscape with one of the colors, if you'd pick purple, you can do a flowers, green, park, right, field. Okay. So all of you pick a color of the rainbow and imagine yourself sat somewhere painting a landscape looking upon a landscape now this is not really mind reading this is more me trying to implant a thought in your heads okay. right so i'm just gonna write down uh what i'm hoping you're thinking of um and please if you get this right or close at home please let us know by commenting because it's pretty crazy okay so we want all of our listeners to all do of this our as listeners well. to if, if, in if your car. they're thinking if they're thinking of the thing i'm gonna reveal or close yeah. by just let us know, you know, okay. to see statistically how well I am at um, making you do what I want you to do. So um, I wrote a sunset on a beach. Are you guys close to that in any way? A little. I don't know, because like, see, in the UK, there's not a lot of sun or beach. So I think that works better there. But in Dubai, it's a lot of sun, a lot of beach. So it might not, you know. <laughs> but I'd be interested to see people listening, um, what they're thinking of. Mm. Um, and Chris. Yes. Um, uh, before this, to save a bit on time, I had you write down a random four-digit number. You didn't show me. No, right? I did not. And I'm going to try and guess this. Okay. It's not, it's not your PIN number, right? So I'm okay to like, yeah, reveal yeah, it? It's okay. not my PIN number. Okay, so... It um, totally is his PIN number. It totally is his PIN number, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It's not my PIN number. Quickly yeah. change it. Um, so uh, think of one of the digits, okay? Don't tell me which one. Okay. Change your mind. Okay. Uh, it's in the middle, the nine, right? It is. It is the, the nine. Okay. Yeah. Okay. That's one of the digits. So uh, it's four digits, right? Yes. Okay. Uh, think of another digit. One. <laughs> yes. <Okay. laughs> what? Can, can you can you jump to another one? 
Yeah, I can't. Where do you want me to look? Do I have to look at you? No, you already um, did the looking thing in a very good way because the first time when I got you to change your mind from the nine to the one, you thought about it. And when I said again, uh, change your mind, you said yes straight away, which tells me one and nine are the only digits and they're repeated. Is this correct? <laughs> yeah. Yes. Okay. I'm going to just write this down here and show everybody watching. Oh, oh my gosh. Is it 1999? It is 1999. It is 1999. <laughs> so Chris, predictable. So predictable. Oh my God. <laughs> Why that is it 1999? It's the most important year in Chris's life. That's actually quite easy when uh, when the numbers aren't different. It's very easy because you can see it. It's very easy when people no, think of zero. A wonderful year for yeah. film as well. Yeah. For film. <laughs> you know, regular listener to this show that you got that. That is mental to me that you do that. Thank you. Well yeah. done. Thank a you lot very of much, listeners yeah. are actually messaging in saying, yes, exactly. Sea and sand. It was the beach. Yes. So, I knew right. it. It yeah. works. Yeah. yeah, yeah. That's, that's pretty, they picked up on my thoughts. <laughs> pretty They're psychic damn like good, me. Tyler. Thank wow. you very much. Thank you. Wow. Uh, Martin, I'm not going to ask you to follow that. Don't worry. <laughs> <laughs> that was impressive. That was pretty strong. Uh, but, I mean, in, in terms of your own Guinness World Record-breaking exploits, uh, you were just showing us a video of some of the things you're, you're up to and have been yes, up to indeed. and will be up to. Um, which are kind of death-defying in many ways. <laughs> they are. Well, I have actually brought with me a little present for each of you, so yes, uh, I'm grab them right here. I've got a copy of the 2024 Guinness Book of Records uh, for Love each of you it. because uh, I've actually got six Guinness World Record titles that I've what broken. What page is it on, Martin? Uh, it's page 199. So I've done most magic on a skydive, most magic underwater. Uh, I did uh, Most Magic Blindfolded in one minute, uh, Most Magic in one minute. and uh, It is actually on page 199. Yeah, I know. There we that's, go, there we go. That's why we work well together. <laughs> that was my magic trick. Me and, uh, me and Martin are connected, you see. Yeah. <laughs> that's genuinely blowing my mind that it's on page 199. <laughs> How does one do magic on a skydive? With difficulty, because uh, you fall at 120 miles per hour mm. uh, through the air, so uh, it means that anything that's in your hand is fighting to get out of it. Mm. Uh, yeah. But uh, that was kind of just a bit of a warm-up really for my next my, my, well my latest project which is my big legacy project I'm now working on which is uh, Magic in Space right. and aiming to do Magic in Space by 2028 and so, there are multiple parts of this that you told us so let's walk through a couple of them yeah so uh, I'm doing this incrementally to uh, work my way up to space so first thing I'm going to do sign card in space where I send a deck of cards up on a balloon to the edge of the atmosphere and then on the ground I'm going to get someone to pick a card sign it and then I'll make it vanish from the ground and instantly pop out the cards in space uh, the second <laughs> element which I would love to do over here uh, is to try and break the current Guinness World Record for the highest escape from a straight jacket. So the current altitude is 7,200 feet. Uh, I want to go on a hot air balloon up to 10,000 feet, suspend below the basket, escape from the straight jacket, and then on top of that, I want to climb back into the basket, then put on a parachute, and then I'll climb on top of the balloon and then jump off the top of the you balloon. You want to be dangling in in 10,000 feet of fresh air. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, essentially that, yeah, I will be dangling without a parachute. So, uh, yeah. How that does is... that work? Are you on a, like a bungee cord or what? Uh, no, so I'm going to be definitely strapped in very, very much so by my <laughs> ankles because I've got to be suspended upside down. So, uh, and also I can't have the parachute on under the straight jacket because uh, while taking the straight jacket off, I could, um, yeah, essentially cause problems with the uh, parachute. Um, <laughs> so I have to actually suspend. Yeah, how's with your that... head for heights, Martin? 
Ah, do you know what? I don't mind heights at all. Water's no, my biggest thing. No, evidently not. So, uh, yeah. <laughs> and obviously, again, part of my ignorance, you'll have an oxygen mask on for that. To be honest with you, at 10,000 feet, is, I mean, the uh, oxygen levels are a little bit uh, less dense, but uh, uh, there's different breathing techniques that I've been working on as part of the training what? for it. So uh, I can actually hold my breath for like four and a half minutes using the Wim Hof breathing technique. And, oh, uh, Wim Hof, so, uh, yeah. former guest of ours uh, on off script. Oh, he's an nice. absolute legend. So, he's a legend. Uh, yeah. Uh, but yeah, so I'll certainly be using uh, those techniques to just help me um, just keep calm in the moment because it's not I, although the the records are quite extreme when you're actually in that and when if anyone well, anyone who does any extreme sports will know that it's not about being an adrenaline junkie and all that it's about just keeping yourself calm keeping yourself level and focused in the moment because uh, you, you're literally putting your life on in, the, in and, your own hands and the Wim Hof breathing technique is that what you use for the underwater stuff so actually, I did have oxygen for underwater because I was actually underwater for like four hours on the day when oh, we God. did it because uh, I had to uh, yeah just uh, get everything prepped and uh, practice. So uh, I was yeah actually in water for four hours on the day. But uh, yeah, when it came to uh, the water record, it was you, difficult. Have you created your very own genre of magic in this sense? Do you have any other magicians yeah. that are in this space doing the same sort of stuff no well there are other magicians that have got guinness world records and there's magicians who are now i think coming after mine as well but uh you know if they want to that's fine because i know how difficult it is to get a record and um so for me like anyone who pushes themselves enough to go out and actually do it like for instance the water record most magic underwater in three minutes was broken just before christmas uh by a 13 year old girl in america yeah. and i was so proud of her for doing so because uh with what i do now and especially with magic in space i want to use it as a means to inspire the next generation to get out and face their fears and pursue their dreams and uh she's a prime example of that because uh she didn't just break the record she smashed it as well so i'm so proud of her and i've got no intentions of uh, trying to claim it back because uh yeah if anything like just the the story and the kind of journey that i've been on with it and the fact i've now passed it over to someone who you know she was eight when i first came up with the idea it. of doing the record myself and uh yeah so the fact that she's now done it is, i just i've got so much admiration for for doing it because i know the difficulties and challenges that are involved is the magic circle still a thing guys yeah 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 very much so we so, go. So, uh, we go every Monday and uh, gossip about spectators. <laughs> <laughs> we go. Oh, uh, another guy told me to make his wife disappear. Oh, another guy wants to remember the numbers. Yeah. 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 Do you remember that guy picked 1999 again? Yeah. <laughs> oh, that guy. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Okay. So 1999. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but, but seriously, you, yeah. you can still get into the magic circle. Yeah. You, do you still mm. have to like pass certain tests to qualify? Yeah. So, yeah. Um, so. If if you want to uh, become a member, you need two members to recommend you and. And then you go through an interview and then a 12-minute performance in front of your peers, which is not the great, because can I say, magicians, they will not look impressed. Yeah. No. Even if you fool crowd. them or not, they're like, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm. uh-huh, I reckon I know. But then after, they'll be like, how'd you do that? <laughs> <laughs> so it's very funny. How much do you guys share with other sort of people in the same world? I mean, it's more like our group, I guess, right? Yeah, I think... Like we have a group of magician friends yeah. that we share amongst ourselves. You know, if we come up with an idea, I'll send right. it to Martin, I'll send it to whoever to mm. get, like, feedback and stuff. So, yeah. yeah. And are you a der- d- derivative of other magicians, or is there anyone pure kind of original? No. Yeah, no, everything's, everything's all, a remix. Yeah, <laughs> it's, it's, it's the same as music. I say, in fact, learning magic is similar to learning the piano, that anyone can play chopsticks on a piano. Some people can play a few songs. Some people can play, you know, some more in-depth songs. And some people can play, like, you know, full symphonies. And, um, I so think it's just for Martin, though, anyway, anyway, the originality comes from the records because there's no magician that yeah. has six records or whatever. And he's yeah. going to keep going, you know? So I yeah. think who's that's more goat? of a... I was who's, about who, to ask who's, the same. Who's the magic? Who's, who's the magician? The, who's the Federer? Who's the Messi? Yeah. Darren Brown. Darren Brown, Darren Brown and David Blaine, I think, Those, are the two the two ones. DBs. Yeah, 
TDBs. Yeah, they're, go, they're God and God for yeah. us, basically. Yeah. Interesting. <laughs> wow. Real inspiration. David Blaine got me into magic. He got you into magic. He, yeah. he brought in a new wave of magicians. whole new wave, you know? yeah. yeah. Wow. And, wow. Uh, yeah. Well, listen, guys, it's been a pleasure to have you in studio. Thank um, you so much for having Martin us. and Sila, they are going to be performing Evening of Wonders at the Theatre by QE2. It's going to be a fantastic show. Yeah. And Martin, thanks so much for the gifts as well. No worries. No worries. Really, Thank really you so much for having that. us on. L- thanks for having you us, you guys. Cheers, Thank guys. You. The Off Script Podcast. Figures of speech on Off Script. We choose to go to the moon. All men are created equal. How dare you? I regard myself as a soldier, though a soldier of peace. Today, we celebrate our Independence Day. (laughs) I love how the Independence Day speech makes it end. Yeah, no, so do I. I love everything about that little jingle. Um, now, for this edition of Figures of Speech, the chief speechwriter for Vice President Al Gore, Robert Lemon, and the author of Live from the Campaign Trail, Michael Cohen, they're going to set the scene for us. Barack Obama in 2004 was totally unknown. People were saying, huh, I don't know who this guy is. I wonder why they picked him. He had this reputation as a bit of an upstart, as sort of a young rising figure in the party, but no one knew who this guy was. This was his chance to introduce himself to people. So first of all, I'm getting I'm getting a bit depressed because how was 2004 20 oh, years yeah, ago? No, that, that's yeah. kind of really, I, I read that and I thought, huh? where did my life go? But anyway, 2004 <laughs> in the United States of America, John Kerry has been selected as the nominee for the Democratic Party. At the Democratic National Convention, as a young senator, he appears on stage to deliver a speech just in support of the nominee, not for himself, but just in support. And the speech that follows it, you know, galvanised the crowd. Um, it was probably one of the most famous speeches of this millennium so far since the year 2000, uh, I would say. I, I still remember bits of it because it did make news. There was this young politician who just had that X factor, call it what you will, you know, from Illinois, from Chicago, and he stood there. Still, I remember it would have been about the time I'd just started university, and obviously American politics was a part of my syllabus, part of my module. And I remember, I remember thinking, wow, this guy's been catapulted into mm. the watching world, and he might just break through some And he looks scenes. so young and fresh. Yeah, yeah. he does. And skinny, well, he's quite skinny. I know he was, but... He was he, very skinny. Yeah. 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 Uh, Barack Obama, complete unknown political figure at the time, just absolutely catapulted into the public spotlights and his speech from the 2004 Democratic National Convention has been called the speech that put him on the map and the moment that America began their love affair with this man. Um, But what was it about the speech that was so inspiring, so powerful? As Cohen explains, when it comes to US politics, a great speech folds an individual story into a larger, universally American story. My parents shared not only an improbable love, they shared an abiding faith in the possibilities of this nation. I stand here knowing that my story is part of the larger American story, that I owe a debt to all of those who came before me, and that in no other country on earth is my story even possible. So he's, he's taking his very unique, specific set of circumstances, his own background, and he's kind of Selling extrapolating it out yeah. to every single person in America. Um, and interestingly, some of the stuff he says, I fundamentally just don't agree and I don't think it's true. We'll, we'll okay. get to that as well. But um, one month earlier, 
the genesis of this speech actually happened in June. The speech was given in July. Uh, Saturday, June the 26th, Barack Obama, he was in a recording studio in Chicago. He was actually responding to President Bush's weekly radio address. And um, it was actually one of the first times that he'd ever been given a national stage to speak on. And his speech was written by his media advisor, David Axelrod, and by his chief press aide, Robert Gibbs. And, he, you know, he delivered it. He uh, criticised Bush on loads of different economic issues and that yeah. kind of thing. And it was just it's very well-argued, well eloquent speech, you know, pushed all the right buttons. And, um, you know, of course, it showcased his very authoritative, baritone, warm vocal abilities. Yeah, yeah. I mean, he's a great speaker, right? right. He's, he's a got great that orator. style. He's got that panache as an orator, for sure. Yeah. But uh, having given the address, he was actually furious with himself. He came out of the studio and um, he said that was really flat. Something was missing from that, you know. And, and Gibbs himself said, you know, it was solid, but it was just, it was nothing, there was nothing inspiring about it. And it was obvious that he was delivering the words that were written by someone else. So one week later, John Kerry's campaign manager called Obama and told him he'd been picked to deliver the Democratic National Convention keynote speech. Wow. And um, he said, listen, guys, I'm only doing this if I'm writing the speech myself. No one's going to write this for me. And in the end, he wrote a 2,297-word, 17-minute keynote speech that he delivered on July 27th, 2004, that just galvanised the, delegate, the delegates, brought the house down at Boston's Fleet Centre. And uh, before the speech, I mean, the idea of him running for president in 2008 was, would have been totally laughable. It would have yeah. just been a non-starter. He was a lowly senator from uh, Hyde Park in Chicago. He actually had a decent chance at winning the US Senate race. He would actually enter that, that body, ranked 99th out of 100 in seniority. And... Um, no Democratic keynoter of the entire previous century had made it all the way to the presidency. So, Great you know, start. It was, uh, history was massively against him. But after the speech, observers from across the political world basically called it an instant classic. He was drawing comparisons with John F. Kennedy and Martin Luther King. Alongside our famous individualism, there's another ingredient in the American saga. A belief that we're all connected as one people. If there is a child on the south side of Chicago who can't read, that matters to me even if it's not my child. If there's a senior citizen somewhere who can't pay for their prescription drugs and having to choose between medicine and the rent, that makes my life poorer even if it's not my grandparent. It is that fundamental belief, I am my brother's keeper, I am my sister's keeper, that makes this country work. Oh, he's good, isn't he? He's very good. I mean, I don't agree with him, actually. I think that America is 50 different countries, and I don't really think they care that much in Texas about what's going on in Illinois, frankly. No. Uh, that, that would be my own reading on it. Like, they, care about they care about local issues, you know, that, that re revolve around local society and local kind of community. But it's such a vast country of so many different types of people that this notion that everyone is bound by some kindred unifying kind of idealistic vision is lo lovely for a speech like this and he delivers it beautifully i just don't think it's reality i agree with you but i think a speech like that is about some sort of lofty aspiration yes. of what we could be painting a picture even though people probably know that's not a reality yeah. kind of making them believe it is their reality even mm. though it totally isn't
Okay, we've talked a little bit about the speech. It was not exactly what you would call spontaneous. Um, it was worked on and curated and laboured over for weeks. As soon as he had decided a month prior that the one that was written for him by someone else yeah. was no good, he set to work about writing this speech. It took him basically the best part of a month to write it. And um, he was actually furious because some of John Kerry's speechwriters actually cut out a couple of his remarks and he was fiercely sort of uh, protective, protective of, of it. Um, and actually, it, he, he started slowly. Uh, it, it was a little bit of a slow start. And then he kind of hit his stride halfway through. And then by the end, it was kind of liftoff. And a lot, a lot of the, the power of it and the magnetism of it was down to his natural charisma, his great speaking voice. Now, Mario Cuomo, the former governor of New York, and Robert Lehman expand on some of the elements of the technique that he employed. Obama was born with two great gifts. Uh, one is his mind, and the other is his ability to speak to large groups of people. There are three things that Obama does that really makes that speech effective. He wants concrete detail. He likes story, and he loves antithesis, the use of repetition and structure to show contrast. There is not a liberal America or a conservative America. There is one America. There is not a black America and a white America and Latino America and Asian America. There's the United States of America. Oh, it's cheesy, but it's bullying. <laughs> he, I mean, if he, he really did write it himself, it's a heck of a talent, that. Yeah. To craft that. I mean, yeah, he's very intelligent individual, isn't he? And he has that ability to, you know, he knows what people want, I think. I think he was the ultimate sort of style, stylish yes. kind hmm. of politician. He was an auditor. Yeah, he, he could have been a good salesman if, if he oh, wanted sure. to go, go down yeah. that, that particular path. And actually, his energy changes throughout the speech as well. I mean, it's a 17-minute speech. Um, you know, he begins to pick it up around the four-minute mark. He starts Roger using... Bannister he sta Yeah, he did. He started. Yeah, exactly that. Really hits his stride. And then he starts using we and are just around the time that he starts to lift yeah, yeah, the energy yeah. levels. And then by the time he gets into the last minute or so, I mean, the man's in full cry. The hope of a young naval lieutenant bravely patrolling the Mekong Delta. The hope of a mill worker's son who dares to defy the odds. The hope of a skinny kid with a funny name who believes that America has a place for him too. Hope, hope in the face of difficulty. Hope in the face of uncertainty. The audacity of hope. I mean, he's borrowed a little bit of that from Shawshank Redemption, I think. <laughs> Absolutely. Morgan Freeman is, is definitely the ghostwriter for that. That skinny kid with a funny name was so strategic, right? It's kind oh, of it getting was. ahead of what he knows his yeah. critics are going to say. He's done an m, &M move. Mm, yeah, yeah, it is. Yeah, exactly. Tell me something I don't know about me. <laughs> yeah. Or whatever you... That's exactly it. <laughs> the skinny kid with a funny name now finds something to write about. Yeah, exactly. Brilliant. Um, his speech has gone down as one of the most powerful speeches in recent history. And, you know, it, it was ultimately, you know, the, the, as I said, the, the, the kind of the speech that really propelled him towards the White House. And, and as Robert Lehman and Mario Cuomo kind of summarise, impossible to overstate the significance given the context of his political aspirations. His appearance at that convention, which was the best speech of the convention, better than John Kerry's, was electrifying 
and without it, he wouldn't be president. I think sincerity means a lot. There are people who, when they speak, they speak the truth as they see it, and they're, they're very effective doing that. I believe this country will reclaim its promise, and out of this long political darkness, a brighter day will come. Thank you very much, everybody. God bless you. A penny for a dollar. Oh, the thoughts just, of John. Yeah, <laughs> I was just going to say that. I mean, if ever you'd regret an invitation, it would be surely that. <laughs> oh no! Looking at your speech, thinking, oh no! Yeah, How do I follow that? Exactly that. Uh, yeah, talk about taking the jam out of that man's donut. <laughs> So. Yeah, I'm surprised Kerry's advisors allowed him to yeah. just steal his thunder like that. And he's not exactly Mr. Charisma, John Kerry, no, is he? No, he's not. So uh, what did he take to the stage to say? I'd love to see his speech. Obama's <laughs> whipped the crowd into a frenzy. <laughs> and then I'll give you the stage to my right honourable friend, John Kerry. Away to go, John. <laughs> so and then John, comes, Hello, up, John comes in and goes, well, OK, let's talk fiscal policy. <laughs> I mean... <laughs> Yeah, uh, I think he said it. Obama totally hijacked that. <laughs> he totally hijacked. He, he's, you know, talk about biting the hand that feeds you. You know what? They're giving you the stage. That's the only way to go. Exactly. Yeah. And he knocked it out of the park. John yeah. would have gone, oh, God, why do you invite this bloke? <laughs> Honestly. The Offscript Podcast. Living on a prior. Paying homage to the greatest albums of all time. We are talking the 80s power ballad. Because... They're brilliantly nostalgic, but quite embarrassing because they're of their time. You often associate them with great films rather yeah. than the cringeworthy music yeah. videos that they were all about. Top Gun, etc. Exactly, exactly. Big hair, tight jeans. I mean, the the whole genre was of its time, but quite good. They're shamelessly out <laughs> there in, in kind of the, the way they put their emotions out there. We'll get into it. But there's some great musicianship on them. Everything's turned up to 11, and as a result, there's been loads of spoofs, parodies, and send-ups, which we've kind of gone through over the ensuing 30 years since the 80s power ballad. It all started back with a band you'll be very familiar with, but maybe a song you may not have heard of. 1981 and Journey of Don't Stop Believing yeah. fame, they released a song called Open Arms, um, and it's brilliant. It's stereotypical of power ballads. It's got soaring vocals, heartfelt lyrics, stereotypical of the genre, but also stereotypical of the band Journey. And this was the first ever this power ballad. This is kind of what everybody points towards as the first Ooh. power ballad. This Take kicked off the genre. All right. Yeah, it definitely ticks the box. Ticks the box, doesn't it? Now, interestingly, Journey arguably would have lost their record contract had they not really? gone down this route, right? They formed in 1973, so this was uh, eight years later. In San Francisco, they were members of Santana, the Steve Miller Band, and the brilliantly named Frumius Bandersnatch. I don't know nothing about what I'm going to Google them when I get home. By 1980, they'd had sort of seven years trying to release some music to get some um, uh, success. The record label was saying, nah, we're, we're done. Either change your sound or we get rid of you. So they recruited the voice that you heard there, Steve Perry. He hadn't been in the band before 1980. He kind of smoothed them out a little bit. He's got a, quite a high voice, obviously. And their previously more rocky sound was kind of tempered down a bit and reignited uh, with that song, Open Arms. Uh, their career was set in stone. From there, they obviously, they do. Uh, it, they played across all the rock and pop stations because it kind of crosses over the genres. It set the stage for a 
a surge in the emotionally charged ballads that characterised by lush instrumentation, soaring guitar solos and lyrics that spoke about the depth of the human experience. I'm loving your eyes are closed oh, telling right. us that, Rog. I mean, I'm, you're almost doing your own power ballad. I'm singing a power it. ballad, yeah. Love it. So we'll quickly talk about what makes a power ballad. Okay, I've mentioned the lyrics. It's unbridled emotion. They put big themes of love and heart right out there. And also, they kind of slow things down a little bit. So rock is normally 100 BPM or 120 BPM. By BPM, I mean beats per minute. So with hard rock, you've got about 100 um, beats every 60 seconds. With heavy metal, you've got 120 beats. But power ballads, they use all those elements of guitars and pianos and synths, but they slow it down to 80 beats per minute. So we'll do a quick thought experiment, right? Think of your favourite power ballad, okay? So, like, uh, I just died in your arms tonight, or, um, you know, uh, I want to know what love is, right? Think of the chorus, right? Here is, sing it along in your head at 80 beats per minute. Have a listen to this. Just sing it in your head if you're in the car. I want you to show me. That's how slow it is, right? If okay. you then whack that up to 120 beats per minute, it's a totally different song and it doesn't work. So here's 120 beats per minute. Sing the same song in your head. It's all about slowing that beat down, putting the emotions on show and giving yourself a power ballad. So when we, that, when we come yeah. I'm going to record, I'm gonna record I Want to Know What Love Is. Send it on WhatsApp and just listen to it double speed and see how it sounds. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Um, you can't talk about the power ballad without talking about powerhouses like Heart. This group is incredible. We have to do a living on a prior on them. We've mentioned them in passing in times, but you cannot forget Alone from the album Bad Animals in 1987. Few songs transport you to the 80s as much as that one. (laughs) It does, doesn't it? It really does. The sound of that snare is so Pacific Highway 1, Mustang, (laughs) Roof Down, that full blast. Yes. Yes, please. It's not actually a heart song. I didn't know this until today. Despite being synonymous with the group, the original uh, was written and recorded about four years earlier by Billy Steinberg and Tom Kelly, who they recorded it under a name which had incredible foresight. They were called I-10, right? With a little I and a big letter T for the 10. And they just had it as an album track back then. This is what it sounded like when they did it. You can, I mean, Hart didn't exactly reinvent the wheel with their version, did they? No, it's just bigger. Yeah, it's yeah, much, much bigger. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Was I was expecting it to be an acoustic. Or, <laughs> no, no, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, very much in the same vein. And then another version featured on the sitcom Dreams, uh, which was sung by actress Valerie Stevenson and John Stamos. Then Hart picked it up and made it what it was. Wow. And made those uh, people, Billy and Tom, a lot of money. Um, there were Oscar moments at the height of the power ballad. Penned for Starship, Sonal's favourite, the, by the legendary songwriting giants, Diane Warren and Albert Hammond, Nothing's Gonna Stop Us Now in 1987 would go on to be nominated in the 1988 Oscars for the Best Original Songs. It also happens to have, ultimately, this one gets forgotten, but it's got a brilliant guitar solo. Here's a tiny little bit of it. (laughs) 
So I said they're all about films, right? So that was uh, released with the film Mannequin with yes. Andrew McCarthy, Kim Cattrall. Kim Cattrall. Ultimately, right. a little bit better than the film. You know, the song is so much better than the film. You know, but it's, it's an interesting concept of a film. Can you guess what it was beaten by at the 1988 Oscars as best original song? Oof. Oh, eat it, eat. No. Any clues? Oh, Guns N' Roses? Yeah, no, no, no. Uh, is Rocky? It, no. It, it was a big year for films, but it was... Oh, Top Gun? No. Nah, it's no, it, it, nah. it was Dirty Dancing. Ah. And the film was Time of My Life by Jennifer Warner and Which is more of a, Bill more of a ballad than a power ballad. More of a, yeah, absolutely, yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. Yeah, but I mean, what a year for music, eh? Uh, well, fi- music from the films. Again, again, pointing to the point that we should come back to um, definitely do a bit more about original soundtracks. So... Tougher groups also showcased the genre's versatility by infusing power ballads with a bit of a harder edge and the prowess of guitar gods. Guns N' Roses, Slash, White Snakes, Vivian Campbell all jumped on board. We've talked about November Rain by Guns N' Roses quite a bit, so there's no need to revisit now. That leaves us a little bit of space to talk about Sheffield's finest, <laughs> White Snake, who absolutely <laughs> nailed the power ballad with this song, Is This Love? I mean, I know what I'm plugging into Spotify on my drive home. It's 80s power ballads. <laughs> Absolutely. So that was written by David Coverdale, who formed Whitesnake after he left Deep Purple. He was Deep Purple's uh, lead singer for a few years in the 70s. I never knew there was Whitesnake Deep Purple crossover, there but it makes so massive. much sense. Yeah, yeah. You can hear it, right? Yeah. Um, and so he and guitarist John Sykes actually wrote that song in the south of France. Very glamorous. They wrote it for Tina Turner. they did. But the story, according to David Coverdale, goes that when record executives famous record executive David Geffen heard it he said no no you've got to keep that for yourself that'll be a huge hit for you and Whitesnake recorded and released yeah, it I, I dare say it would have been a bigger hit for Tina Turner probably, frankly probably yeah yeah um, the decline of the power ballad I mentioned that we're just focusing on 80s power ballads 1981 was when Journey kicked it off and by 1989 and 1990, certainly, you've got the grunge movement led by bands like Nirvana and Pearl Jam kind of bringing in a new authenticity and raw emotion. Different kind of emotion from what we were getting in um, Power Ballast. <laughs> a but bit caricature, wasn't it? It was, absolutely. Our caricature is perfect. And they, they dressed differently. They were just different to the polished, grandiose sounds of Power Ballast, kind of railed against everything that it had come to represent over the decade. So released in 1990, the opening seconds of track one, side one, and never mind, is of course the song Smells Like Teen Spirit. And that's kind of what all these music writers say is the symbolic death knell for the power ballad, marking a shift towards a grittier alternative sound that dominated the 90s. But there is a song that a lot of people say from the power ballad genre that actually killed it off. So it comes from the band Kiss. Now, they weren't known for power ballads. They no. were known for more like cartoon rock, you know. They had the face paint, they had the big hair, they had the cat suits. But they did have a moment in time where they hung the cat suits up and they got rid of the makeup. Um, and some crazy night, no, is it crazy nights or jump? They didn't have all that gear on. And they released an album called Hot in the Shade in 1989. And Kiss... 
again, jumped on the power ballad genre with a song called Forever Kiss, which is called The Song That Killed Power Ballads. <laughs> It's the thing. Okay, it's not really Kiss, but I don't think that's shocking. I've heard worse power ballads than yeah, that, definitely, just from that snippet. Definitely heard worse ones. I think the problem was it's saturation by that point. By yeah. 1989, you've heard all the tropes and everyone's a bit sick There's of them. There's only so then... many power ballad chord changes you can do as well. <laughs> exactly, exactly. And once a band like Kiss jumps on a genre that you maybe you love, you're a bit like, oh, come on, do we need another one of these? Is that another group doing it? So sadly, uh, uh, as loudersound.com said, forever is a hard rock power balladry where every last ounce of character systematically has been drained from it. <laughs> Ooh, I kind hard. of felt that. I felt like it's formulaically, it's, yes. it hits all the things you talked about, the yeah. beats per minute, the sort of larger than life sound, and yet, it's so emotionless. Exactly. This is the mark. Yeah. Bit cynical. Mm. We'll make a bit of money off this. Kiss famously love the money. So they've just jumped on it and they've thought, well, let's just rinse this for, you know, six months. We'll tour this album. It'd be easy. So, yeah, I kind of get where it comes from. But you're right, Rob. Not the, Probably not the worst you'll hear, but a combination of all those things. Um, sadly, Kiss proved that nothing lasts forever, not even power ballads. Um, certain bands su- survived the demise, uh, but generally you find that they were rooted in more Americana and country as an audience. So Bon Jovi, for instance, they released Always, which you would call a massive power ballad, but that was in 1994, so that was outside of this 1980s genre, well into the grunge era, but Bon Jovi had kind of a different fan base from these, these power balladeers, yeah. as you would call them. Power balladeers, I love it. <laughs> <laughs> the balladeer, I love it. Absolutely. Uh, okay, so, do, you think, do you think it could ever be revived, Rog? Will we ever revert? You well, know, things work in cycles. They do work in cycles. I think it'll be repurposed. I mean, you, Chris, you mentioned the uh, Brian Adams song, Heaven, that was kind of yeah. repurposed as dance. Mm. So I think you're likely to hear a lot of these drum fills and a lot of these big guitar riffs mm. as samples. And then, who knows? Look, Harry Styles kind of might go down the power ballad route. Who knows? Whatever. I mean, the song we're about to play, how has this never been a floor filler? How has this never been? (laughs) This is maybe the ultimate power ballad. Great choice, Rog. Looking forward to this. Enjoy it. It's Foreigner. I want to know what love is on Dubai 103.8. Podcast. We hope that you enjoyed this episode. Please do go ahead and click subscribe. You can also check out our other podcasts, Time Capsule or The Big Interview. Find it wherever you get your podcasts. 